Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website, located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with a wonderful human. I'm with T. Sydney Bergeron-Mikas, who I actually met through the gram. And um, they're here uh, to talk about a lot of things. But um, Sydney is a an activist and a writer um, and uh, lives with tick-borne illness, including Lyme, um, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, and POTS. Uh, as well as thyroid disease, which is looking like Hashimoto's. So um, we're going to get into all of this stuff. Uh, but Sydney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited yeah. to be doing this. Yay! Well, um, let's get straight into it. Why don't you tell us how you first found out that you were living with these illnesses? Sure. So I had a very long journey to get diagnosed with my various predicaments. So I first started getting tests done when I was, I think, in ninth grade. And for reference to when I was diagnosed, I was in my fifth year of college with like no break in between. So that's- yeah, That's a long time. A long time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, it's about 10 years. Oh wait, no. About, no. It's, it's nine. Like nine years. Okay, nine years, yep. I think depending on when, when you start counting things. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. So about nine years. Mm. And it took, took a long time because every test was coming up negative or inconclusive. Mm. And as you may or may not know, tests for tick-borne diseases are not very accurate, especially Lyme disease. That's the one that you hear about the most, and the test is so unreliable. Yeah. So I got all the various tests done and everything was coming up inconclusive. So I just kind of ignored it because we couldn't figure out what was going on. And at that point, it wasn't so bad that it was hugely interfering with my life. It was more of just a nuisance. And then there were also so many things that I did not realize were symptoms. I just thought they were part of being a person and maybe I just wasn't handling them as well as everyone else was. 
Right. And then I, I kept getting tested periodically just because I have what I now know are flare-ups, but at the time I had no idea what was going on and kept coming back inconclusive. And then finally I got very insistent about it and went to a specialist because in my fifth year of college, I'm in a five-year program, uh, in my fifth year of college, I just couldn't get anything done anymore. My brain fog was terrible. Um, I guess I was still getting stuff done, but not to the level I was used to. <laughs> my brain fog was terrible. And the worst symptom, actually, I think is from POTS. I would just get hugely dizzy and shaky and nauseous, and I would have to lie flat on the floor for about an hour before I'd start to feel better. Wow. I hate throwing up more than anything. And Same. Yes. I just straight up refuse to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> yep. So that was the point where I was just like, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't be just like lying down on the floor wherever I am. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. just it was just way too much. And my mom actually also has tick-borne diseases. I know she has Lyme. I don't know what other ones she has, and she actually doesn't know because she was diagnosed back when doctors weren't really paying as much attention to the other ones. Right. So I'm sure it's in her records somewhere, but she doesn't know off the top of her head. And then also, of course, there are the memory issues that come with it. Yeah. So <laughs> Absolutely. they told her and she just forgot. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's like the chronic illness, chronic invisible illness. Mm-hmm. Um, the overlap is, is the brain fog, right? That, like, I feel like every single one of us has had that at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just really interferes with your, your everyday mm-hmm. functionality, not only as a student, but also at work and in all of your social interactions. I mean, it affects everything. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so she, she kept pushing me throughout this whole thing to go to a specialist. And then when I got to that point where it was really bad, I finally took it more seriously and found a specialist to go to. And I'd been so hesitant because, first of all, I didn't know where to look. And secondly, most of them do not take insurance. So I knew it would be expensive. Mm -hmm. And I'm very financially privileged, but even so didn't feel comfortable doing that when everything was still manageable. Right. So I, I waited until things got really bad, which of course probably makes it harder <laughs> to treat. Mm. But I also just didn't really know any better. Right. So that's sure. when I was finally diagnosed with um, my tick-borne diseases. And then around like eight months later, I was diagnosed with POTS. Okay. And then I don't remember when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. I think I have the dates on my website just because people ask me so often. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to um, cross-reference all of that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And we're going to obviously link to your website on the episode page and everything. Um, We'll mention it at the end, but you can find you and your work. So what steps have you taken to control your health? You you mentioned obviously finding specialists, um, but in terms of the treatments that you're undergoing, what is that looking like for you? Sure. So I started out with doing intravenous treatment. Um, Well, actually backtrack a little bit. I started doing some supplements for a few months and then intravenous treatments. And um, when you say intravenous, do you mean antibiotics or do you mean ozone? 
So I was doing all like holistic treatment. Um, my body does not like antibiotics. I know I need to do them, but uh, my, my doctor wanted to try to combat it with holistic treatments first. Since they That's wise. Hard on me to try to like knock down the infection level some, so I wouldn't have to do quite as much of the antibiotic mm-hmm. treatment. Absolutely. So I was doing that, and I was supposed to get a pick line, which for anyone who's not familiar is the tube that goes in your arm and up the vein to your heart to deposit the medicine mm-hmm. more directly. And turned out I could not get that because I'm allergic to heparin, which you have to flush the pick line oh, every day. Wow. So we actually discovered that in treatment when I was getting, um, I think it's, it's going to come to me. I was getting a treatment where basically they draw some blood out and run it over ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet oh. let, hold on. Ultraviolet blood irradiation is what it's called. Wow. So basically that's supposed to like kill off the bacteria that the light hits. So Mm. um, when you're doing that though, you need the blood thinner. Sure. Which is what heparin is. Yeah. Yes. And that's what heparin is. So the first time I was fine, the second time I was fine. And then the third time I had a reaction. Oh, wow. Well, it's lucky they caught it before they put the pick line in. Yes, it is. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. So after that happened, we were all just kind of like, hmm, mm. what do we do now? <laughs> yeah. So I so, haven't had any more of that treatment, obviously, mm-hmm. because there isn't really a safe way to do it. Um, I guess I could use saline, but saline and pick lines are tricky because you have to enter the spot more often to flush with saline for some sure. reason. I don't understand why. Interesting. I don't have a medical background. No, sure. But for some reason. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was the last time I did that type of treatment. And then I still did some more IV drips for a little while. I don't totally remember why we stopped doing that, but then my doctor switched me over to herbal supplements. Um, one of them is garlic. I don't know what the other two are. Brain fog. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know what they're called, but I don't know what they mean. Sure. Yeah. So they're they're like an Eastern medicine. Okay. So now you're doing sort of that integrative treatment and you're continuing with supplementation. Yes. Yes. Great. And then at some point antibiotics again. Right. But figuring out how to do that because um, at my most recent check, um, my doctor, I think I mentioned doesn't do like totally Western practices. I guess that's probably fairly obvious given <laughs> the treatment I'm <laughs> describing. Yeah. Um, so he, he does this check. I forget what it's called. Fantastic. That's what most conversations with me are like. Where <laughs> I don't well, you're talking to the right crowd. So that's the good news. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. Yes. Um, so anyway, he, he checks somehow with like the frequencies given off by different bacteria in your blood, they're all different. Wow. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how that works. He's explained it to me in depth multiple times. I have pamphlets on it. Mm. I don't remember any of it. It's very interesting. I haven't heard about right? anything like that. And yeah. Yeah. So it sounds something really cool. with like the sound waves that it responds to or something. I don't totally wow. know. But that's well, how he tells what my infection levels are. And it might make sense in terms of like, cause I know that with, um, these, these tick-borne diseases, there's often a thickening of the blood. Um, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that's sort of affecting whatever like current he's 
putting Ooh. through maybe I'm maybe. just spitballing here, but makes sense to me. Yeah, it does. And, <laughs> and I know we mentioned um, a bit about Bartonella and Ehrlichia. Can you talk sure. about how that all ties into your Lyme diagnosis and um, I know that there's some discussion about whether Bartonella is, in fact, a tick-borne disease. Mm. So can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So the CDC says that Bartonella is not a tick-borne disease. Mm. Um, any, well, I guess I can't make a blanket statement and say everyone, but mm. most of the research I've seen from people in the Lyme community and most like nonprofits associated with Lyme research and tick-borne disease research do count it as one. So I'm not totally sure why CDC doesn't. It's a it's an interesting one because I mean it seems to me um, mm-hmm. my understanding of of Lyme is that Bartonella is absolutely a co-infection um, yeah. and that, you know, even the CDC's guidelines for what constitutes Lyme as well as how to treat Lyme are not Mm -hmm. necessarily in line with what many Lyme literate doctors are practicing. Um, So it's interesting Mm -hmm. you bring that up because, you know, it is that that quote unquote controversy um, applies, but then by the same token, you know, when it comes to something like tick-borne disease, is the CDC where we're going or is it more to the Lyme community and these anecdotal um, cases. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. I, I know that you can get Bartonella from other things. It's also called cat scratch fever. So you mm. can get it from cats. Wow. So I'm guessing that's why the CDC doesn't count it, but I don't Interesting. know for sure. And you do have a cat too. This was one of the things we connected over to. <laughs> yes. But it's great because it seems like he's been kind of a service animal because yes. this is like know when you're having symptoms coming on and like sits on you. Yeah. Yeah. He does. It's kind it's of amazing. amazing. Yeah. 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 So I actually have him as my emotional support animal. That's amazing. So So he doesn't have any like training to be qualified as a service animal because there is a difference Mm. between the two, but he is my emotional support animal. Um, He helps so much with my mental health and he also definitely knows when my physical symptoms are up and he is always there to help out, which is not helpful at all, but (laughs) (laughs) sometimes it's getting in the way of getting things done, but yeah. yeah. And what about, what about the Ehrlichia as well? Can you tell us a bit about what that is and how it fits into the Lyme? Yeah, so I don't actually know what the difference is for most of them. And that's part of what makes tick-borne diseases so tricky is a lot of them have very overlapping symptoms. Mm. So I know there are certain things associated with the different infections, sure. but I don't, I don't know how you can tell like which is which exactly. Right, okay. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's really tricky. Yeah. yeah. I actually don't know off the top of my head even any symptoms that are hard and fast associated with Ehrlichia specifically. Well, it's interesting because from what I understand of it, it is, mm-hmm. as you say, there's so much overlap with Bartonella um, yes. that the two are very closely linked. Yes. Um, but of course, this complicates not only diagnosis, but also treatment because mm-hmm. of the levels of co-infections that you're dealing with in terms of treating the Lyme. Absolutely. Yeah. And then what about the POTS? How are you treating the POTS? Is that something where you just have to be more aware of, you know, standing up fast, sitting down, things like that in your movement? Partly. uh, My POTS treatment actually has helped me very substantially. So that's fantastic. 
Mm. Um, I, I used to get very shaky, very nauseous all the time. Um, mm. Once it happened while I was driving, which was scary because then I had to just pull over and lie down in my car until mm. it went away, which wow. was not fun. No. Um, that's only happened once, which is great. And it has not happened again since I started treatment, which is okay. fantastic. Wow. Yes. And, and what does treatment consist of? Sure. So I go to a specialist who deals with cardiology specifically, and she's a pediatrician. So I was not sure if she would see me because I am an adult. I'm 24, Mm -hmm. but I really lucked out and she agreed to see me based on me just describing what was up and also mentioning that I do have Lyme because Lyme can cause POTS. It doesn't always. Sometimes POTS happens independently of Lyme, but it can cause it. Wow. Uh, Yeah, so she agreed to see me, and then the first meeting was just like a trial kind of thing to see if I actually do have it, because clearly if I didn't have it, then she wouldn't be able to help, or if I didn't have something else that she specializes in. But she diagnosed me with POTS, and I take various medications for it. Sure. Or I have to lie down on the floor, or I sat on the floor of the subway once because I almost passed out and there were no seats available. And I wasn't, at that point, I wasn't, like, identifying as disabled, and I didn't know what was wrong yet, really. And I definitely didn't know I had POTS, so... It was odd, but that hasn't happened again since taking my meds, which is great. Okay, that's really uh, lucky. So it's really managing the POTS symptoms. It really is. So mm-hmm. I, take, I take other medicine as well. I take a lot of salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I drink a lot of water, which isn't technically medicine, but I count that's it. That's good for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I take a beta blocker to help with the tachycardia. And then I also take Ritalin sometimes to help with the brain fog and depression and energy. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. And has it, yeah. has the Ritalin been useful with the brain fog? It's been so useful. Wow. It doesn't always power through it. Sometimes okay. the brain fog is too severe. I'm also on, I think, the lowest possible dose. Sure. Because first, I'm just very small. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you don't want to increase the tachycardia, which stimulants can do. Sure. So being on a really low dose makes it so that I don't get more tachycardia, but I am able to focus better sometimes. Sometimes That's it really doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It's, it's really, it's great. Because, I mean, usually you hear about Ritalin being prescribed for children or yes. for people who are like diagnosed to ADHD. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that it's been prescribed to help you with the brain fog and, and it makes yeah. total sense. That's exactly what it was designed for. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And I was so nervous about it and so hesitant to take it because I, like, I'm already on so many different things and you hear sure. all these horror stories of people abusing Ritalin and like it's a controlled substance. I need a new prescription every month. I need to bring my ID to get it. Wow. So I was a little nervous, but it's it's gone really well. Wow. It helps a lot. It doesn't help with everything. Sometimes the brain fog is too severe, but it definitely has made things easier when it works, which is most of the time, I would say. I think that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I and I never would have expected it either. Like, it yeah. was such a shock to me when she said we should try Ritalin. Yeah. Never I mean, would have I, thought to do that. And, and also the fact that, like, I mean, obviously, like, I'm talking to people in the chronic invisible illness um, world 
all the time. And, and you're the first person who's mentioned it in relation to brain fog. And I think it's such a smart yeah. And if it's something that physically you can handle, you know, mm-hmm. as you're saying, like on the really low dose, it makes a ton of sense. Yes. Um, and then also with the thyroid disease, um, are you still waiting on a final diagnosis of Hashimoto's or do you know that you're in the Hashimoto's world? And welcome to the club if so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. You. So I think I have Hashimoto's. That's what my chart says on the like health portal. Oh, interesting. But they also don't have everything accurate up there. Okay. So I'm not sure. All right. I'm pretty sure it's Hashimoto's. I think that's what they decided on. But I've actually only been to, what's it called? Is it endocrinologist? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I've only been to the endocrinologist once because my family just had a billion health things happen this past year. And wow, okay. the Hashimoto's, to my knowledge, and it's hard to distinguish, but I didn't feel like that was being a huge disruptor. Sure. So I just focused more on other things and also focused on all the other health stuff going on in my family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's, that's the interesting thing too when you have multiple illnesses and when you're balancing work and life and, and illness, you know, um, to be mindful enough to recognize when something is, um, more severe or not, you know, like for me, Hashimoto's had me out, but like for you, the Lyme was more the priority and the POTS Mm -hmm. has been more the priority than the Hashimoto's. So, um, and I imagine if you're not already on some kind of thyroid hormone therapy that you will Mm -hmm. be shortly. (laughs) Yes. So that'll be adding to the thyroxine. Okay. Yes. Uh T4. Fantastic. Yes. But I don't know what it's doing because I haven't been back yet. Right. (laughs) So So we're very early days with that. We are very early days. I have another appointment scheduled, I think for June. Okay. So we'll find out in a couple months. Yeah. They usually give Mm -hmm. it when they first give you the levothyroxine, they usually give it a few months Mm -hmm. to see if it's settling your levels and I'll tell, I can tell you all about that. Because there's a lot that goes into it because, um, you know, a lot of people, particularly if they have the autoimmune concern, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily respond just to the levothyroxine. They need lyothyronine, which is T3, along okay. with T4 um, in order to absorb it. Um, kind mm-hmm. of the way like you need um, vitamin D to absorb calcium. You know, it's like a, mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it, it's very interesting. But it sounds like obviously you've got a lot going on and your, your family has had a lot going on. And, oh, indeed. And, yeah. <laughs> and speaking of your family, I'm really interested to know um, among your family and friends, mm-hmm. at any point in this journey through your health, if you found that you needed an advocate um, and, and how that's affected your relationships as well. Sure. Yeah. So I've done a lot of the research myself. Um, yeah. Not totally sure how or why. I guess just because everyone's busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and also, I mean, you are myself. you're very much an advocate, and we're going to get into your advocacy. Oh, yes, well. that's true. That's yeah. True. Yes. I don't know how to not dive into research either. Yep. It's just like my go-to immediately. Yep. Yes. Um. So I I've been like my main advocate. Um, but my mom has been hugely, hugely helpful in like coming to my appointments with me. She won't let me go by myself to get intravenous treatment, especially since I had my reaction. And I also have a huge fear of needles. Oh man. Horrible. 
or wolfier needles, which has gotten better over the years. Uh, when I was really little, I think it took five people to give me a shot because oh I needed goodness. to be totally restrained because I was horrified. And you're tiny, so yes, <laughs> you're tiny. five people. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I was oh, strong, and I still, like, considering how sick I am and was, I'm amazed at how strong I was. <laughs> but yeah, it took a lot of people to restrain me to give me my, my vaccine. Wow. Yeah, but I, I've improved. I've gotten to the point where I can go and get a shot without bringing along an entourage. Well, I, I should hope so at this point because it yes. sounds like you're getting you're getting stuck with the needle quite a lot too. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So but if you're, oh, go ahead. Still freaks me out. Still freaks me out, and I always try to get someone to come with me unless it's just getting blood drawn. That doesn't scare me as much because that's just blood leaving my body. But whenever you're adding something else to it, especially since I had my reaction, I now just am not comfortable going without someone there just in case. Because my doctor was not in the room when my reaction started oh, wow. showing. Because it took a second. Yeah. And he was with another patient not far away, like just down the hall. Hmm. But still, it made me nervous. Yeah. To be I'm alone. scared to go by myself. And well, and it's, won't it's let me. <laughs> yeah, and it's enough to be to have an invisible illness and to be going mm -hmm. through that process of like trying to be seen, which is another thing we're going to get into because um, you wrote yeah. a really interesting article about visibility um, yeah. and its overlap with queerness, which mm -hmm. is a really cool article we're going to link to. But um, between that that struggle for invisibility or visibility, I should say, you know, and then having something happen and not having your practitioner in the room, that's got to mm -hmm. be really scary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. And, and in terms of your, your mom coming to appointments with you, has that like made you guys closer? How has it affected your relationship with her? Yeah. I mean, we've always been super, super close. Great. So I'm very fortunate about that. Mm. And yeah, um, it's, it's overall been really good. We have, we have an interesting relationship with our conditions because she, I just totally lost my train of thought. It's going to come to me. Uh, about your mom also having tick-borne illness. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's the part that frustrates me the most. By the way, we can get into that more later. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But yeah. She she always kind of hid it from me and from my brother uh, wow. when we were growing up because she didn't want us to worry. Mm. You know. So it's it's made her like that hiding it has kind of yeah. made her not want to talk about it. I think. Mm. And also she's just so used to pushing through that that's her instinct. Whereas I'm trying very hard to always listen to my symptoms and I might listen too much when I should just push through, but it's hard to know. And I also think that's just a generational thing. Yes. Yeah. Where like people, my generation are much more in tune. Well, and more into sharing and right. more into sharing and more into taking the time when you're sick mm. and like advocating that your employer give you a break when you're not feeling well, things like that, which older generations didn't have that luxury. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, self-care has become such a, a colloquial, mm -hmm. you know, sort of term at this point. Um, and that's certainly generational too, that like the mm -hmm. idea of self-care, the concept of it is so different now in the sense that it is even a concept, you know, um, and that people talk about it on wellness blogs all the time and in the news, you know, but that would never have been in the news even when I was a kid, you know, so yes. 
very, as you say, generational. And, and I suppose it also, it also is um, a reflection on, on the positions in the relationship, you know, with the parent not wanting the kid to have to take things on. Absolutely. Um, but as a child, you're more willing to let your parent take things on. Mm-hmm. That's their job too, you know, so very yeah. interesting. Yeah, but now that I'm an adult and yeah. now that I've been diagnosed, she's much more open with me when she's not feeling well, which mm-hmm. I'm so happy about. I imagine that when I was little, I probably would have been terrified to know everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And I still am, like it's scary stuff, but I'd rather she be honest with me. And she she is now because she knows that I understand because I have it. Yeah. So in a way, like, as you say, you guys were already close, but it also mm-hmm. gave you common ground. Um, I'm wondering if you could just walk us through what a, a typical day is like for you. I'm sure there's no such thing as typical with quotes around it because <laughs> the symptoms manifest differently all the time. But I'm wondering um, really what it's like navigating your work and your life and your relationships okay. with your symptoms as they come on. Sure. Sure. So I try to always count out my pills every week. doesn't always happen. Mm. Sometimes I end up doing it morning of. Sometimes I don't take all of them because my supplements make me feel worse, which means they're working, but it's not fun. Mm. Um, so that's one of the first things. Um, lots of water is key, especially for the pots. I really feel it if I'm not hydrated. I also... I I feel like when there's the release of the toxins, I don't know how much you know about tick-borne diseases. With the Herx. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when and you're herxing, reaction. Yes. When you're herxing, that's uh, the die-off of the bacteria for any listeners who don't know. Yeah. And that releases toxins into the body, and that's what makes you feel so much worse. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel better when I'm really, really hydrated when that happens. Okay. And then what about like, you know, when you have demands for work, like deadlines to meet and the brain fog hits or, or, you know, trying to meet friends for drinks and having fatigue or having a physical symptom, how do you manage all of that and, and communicate to people what you need? So I try to build in extra time. Um, I'm going to borrow phraseology from my friend Aditi, who co-hosts the Invisible Illnesses Support Circle with me at the way. Yes, which we're going to get into. <laughs> yes. So she says that she builds in seizure time because she has mm-hmm. epilepsy. And that just was mind-blowing to me to like mm-hmm. call it that and yeah. just factor in that like I need this time to dedicate to the condition that I live with. And that's been really, really helpful. Yeah. So I factor in that, like, I need to have enough time to sleep eight hours every night. I need to have enough time to make sure I'm eating regularly. I need to have enough time to count out my pills. And then I try to build in extra time in case I have a flare-up and I need to just rest a lot. Absolutely. That's been very, very helpful. It's just giving myself more time than I think I will need something I still struggle with because I've always been an overachiever who Mm. wants to do way too much. It's always us. It's always these type A personalities that this happens to. Yep. The irony is is Mm -hmm. not lost on us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm still struggling with that a bit, but I've definitely come a long way. Mm. And I've also just like reevaluated what's most important to get done. And one of the things you mentioned, 
Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was um, that anecdote about sitting down on the train when seats available and how it was yes. before you identified as disabled. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to, to tell us a bit about the journey from not identifying as disabled to identifying as disabled and how that's changed your perception of the way you approach your illness um, and empowered you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So partly I just didn't know that I could. Yeah. Because the only imagery I've really seen of disabled people was people who use wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. Yeah. Other than that, I hadn't heard the word disabled associated with any other type of person. Yeah. Which I think is yeah. true for a lot of people. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so just reading more about the conditions I have mm-hmm. and getting more involved in the community is what taught me that I can refer to myself that way. Uh, one of the main things actually was Yolanda Hadid's book yes. where it has disability in the title. Mm. And I hadn't seen Lyme and disability paired together before that. And then reading uh Fikpore's book, uh, where she talks about using a cane, not because she needs it to support an injured limb or anything like that, but just because she gets fatigued and dizzy. Mm. That was the first time I realized, oh, I can use a cane and it's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then just talking with my parents about it. Um, I, I wrote about this in my article. My dad was hesitant to my use of disabled to describe myself at first. And he's now come fully on board, which is fantastic. And yeah. he's hugely, hugely supportive. And he never didn't want me to use it in a non-supportive way. It was more just out of concern because there's a stigma associated with it. And, you know, you don't want to watch your kids go through being stigmatized. Sure. But it's interesting. And what you do so artfully in this piece, which you wrote for them, um, is you you place these two concepts beside each other so we can really see and understand the dichotomy of invisibility mm-hmm. that goes along with how we self-identify, you know? Um, and again, I'm going to link to this article in on the um, episode page, but it's an article about how your dad was more willing to accept that you were queer than that you had a Lyme diagnosis, right? Yes. Which mm-hmm. is... I mean, it, it's just, it, when I saw just the headline of this piece, it blew my mind. I was like, <laughs> somebody's writing about this. This is amazing, you know. But it's really interesting, the perception from outside, and then how that also affects our perception of ourselves. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That, that, was, that is a, a challenging write, and I'm sure a challenging read for a lot of people, too. Well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure it is a challenging read for a lot of people. For me, I was like, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but it's, it's really, um, and, and, and it really ties into the advocacy work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're not just writing about your experiences and, and sharing them on social media um, for the public, but uh, you've also, as you said, um, co-founded Invisible Illness Support Group at The Wing, which is yes. a co-working space um, designed specifically for women, but it's very mm-hmm. like open. And mm-hmm. um, you're doing that with your friend Aditi. So can you tell us a bit about that support group? Yeah, yeah. So the wing has just always been highly supportive of all the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And 
because of that, they one of the events people reached out to me and said that they were interested in starting a support circle and did I know anyone who would want to lead it? So immediately I texted the DT. So you and Aditi started this support circle? Yeah. Yeah. So we did just a test one first just to see what the interest would be if people actually cared to come. And a lot of people really did. Yeah. Yeah, Um, absolutely. So it was a great connection that you made. mm -hmm. And now you're reaching out to the wider community through your work as well and through the the writing that you're doing. Because it's not just this piece you've written for them, but you've also written for Nylon and Teen Vogue and, and a number of other publications that you're contributing to. So that's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. Um, just just for clarity, I haven't written for Teen Vogue. I've done a social media takeover for them. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. So I can't you. take credit for any writing for them. Well, Would love Teen to Vogue, someday. you should definitely hire Sydney. <laughs> just definitely. Thank you. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> yes. Um, so here's an interesting question because we've talked a little mm-hmm. bit about identity and that journey to identifying as as disabled. Um mm-hmm. Has there, can you give us an anecdote or two where you may have had um, something happen where you've had to justify your illness to someone else or, or be an educator and explain? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very often, all the time. All yeah. The time. Is there anything that stands out <laughs> for you in particular? So since we were just talking about Teen Vogue, <laughs> I went to the Teen Vogue Summit in New York last summer and I'd actually I think I communicated to someone through my school because the new school was partnering with them and Team Vogue used our campus mm. as the location for the summit okay so I got to go for free I was awarded tickets through some social media competition thing awesome you basically just posted about why you want to go and then they picked people Mm. So anyway, I reached out to the person on the new school side to confirm that there'd be designated disability seating. Mm. And then when I got there, there wasn't any. And I had to then, well, what I I ended up doing was I just sat in like the press and guest seating Mm -hmm. because I needed to be near an exit just in case because sometimes like there's too much stimulation and I need to leave and find like a quiet, dark area very light sensitive, hence the sunglasses. Sunglasses. Night but <laughs> you're making you. it look I, cool to be light sensitive. That's for sure. I figure if I have to do it, I might as well have fun. Yep. And do it in style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very Coco Chanel of you. Yes. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> yes. Um, so then someone came over and saw like everyone else had their press badges and I just had my attendee badge that someone came over to tell me I can't sit here. So like, mm. well, you don't have disability seating. You were supposed to. Mm. What am I supposed to I'm, do? Like, where can I go? Like, can you point me to the designated disability seating I was promised? And she let me stay. Mm-hmm. And then the team team and the new school team then reached out to me to make sure that everything would be set up for the next day. And then they had mm-hmm. signs out. I don't know if they did that for everyone or just for the people who personally reached out and contacted them but, but even so it showed to me which was great and it shows what an impact you had just asking for what you needed which is yeah. such an important lesson that i think those of us in the invisible illness community mm-hmm. you know it's a very steep learning curve 
understanding that you're allowed to ask for accommodations when you need them because you need to take care of yourself, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's brave. You have to be it brave because you do have to be brave enough to, to also be like, by the way, I don't look disabled, but I am. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. you know, until you've come to terms with that identity, you know, as we've discussed, and it's, it's hard. It is. And I still struggle with it sometimes. Yeah. Especially think- like asking for a seat is so hard for me. Hmm. And I, I still have such a hard time just asking people to let me sit when I need to. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's because of you're sort of judging yourself from outside and how people would perceive you? I think so. I think that's part of it. And I also don't want to assume that anyone else isn't disabled. Absolutely. That's a really good yeah. point. Because yeah. you can't tell looking at me that I am. So how am I able to tell who to pinpoint to talk to on the bus or the subway and ask well, them? Their look for the man spreader. That's what I do. That's what I do. If I'm I able, like you more and more. Thank you. If I'm able, I always try to go to the white man and get him to give up his seat. Yeah. Yeah. Because he has it the easiest. Yeah, so, absolutely. There we go. Yeah. So... How important is, do you think it is that we keep talking about what we can't see? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that, is that going to be part of the cure? How do we keep being seen for who we really are? Okay. I think it's super, super important, but also recognize not everyone can, hmm. you know, like not everyone's in a position where they can be open about what they're living with or suffering from. Yeah. Like it, it, it's tricky. There is so much discrimination for disabled people. And like I, as I mentioned earlier, I have a really great safety net and a lot of privilege. Mm. I'm white. I come from a family with a fair amount of money. Mm. Like my dad pays for my treatment. I haven't had to go into debt trying to get better like so many other people have. Right. So I'm much more able to talk about what's wrong Mm -hmm. and what needs to be fixed than other people who maybe would risk losing their job if they said they're disabled even though technically you're not supposed to fire someone for being disabled stuff like that happens absolutely I interviewed someone the other day who had that happen to them so it does definitely happen yeah it's it's hard Mm. and not not everyone can do it so that's that's what makes it so tricky it's like how how do we make it so that people can be open yeah. And I, and I think, you know, using your platform as you're able, you know, is really important. And that's where it's mm-hmm. very important, you know, as you're saying to recognize your privilege, if, if you have privilege, you know, recognize mm-hmm. privilege. And then if you have privilege, use it productively, right? Yes. Which is creating platforms for other people and, um, you know, creating something like the support circle at the wing and, and doing things like that and being vocal about what's going on. Because that's one thing that, you know, really drew me to you on social media was that you use Instagram stories a lot. And in your Instagram stories, you're very honest about what's going on with you on a day-to-day basis and mm-hmm. what you're thinking about it. Um, and, um, really sharing very openly about your experience. And that's very valuable, especially for people who might be going through something like a health crisis, like what you've been through, but may not have the resources. It gives them access to ID mm-hmm. resources, doesn't it? And, and to, you know, the ability to find community and be able to learn to identify um, mm-hmm. in whatever way we need to. 
Yes, yes. And I've had so many people reach out to me and say that like they went and they got tested because they found a tick on themselves and they wouldn't have known to if they weren't watching my Instagram. Wow. And that's just so moving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the knowledge isn't out there. It's not talked about widely enough yet. Right. And something like Lyme as well, where we've touched on how something like the CDC's guidelines excuse me, are different from the guidelines that, you know, an integrative or functional medicine practitioner might use to diagnose something like Lyme. Um, You know, just being aware that there may be more than just what we're told by larger organizations Mm -hmm. um, and that what you're going through is real. Yes. Mm. Now we've covered a ton today and um, I like to wrap up my episodes with a few top three lists. Okay. And I was wondering if you could give us your top three tips for someone who suspects they may have something off and maybe entering the world of invisible disability, just like you and me. Okay. So definitely connecting to the community is my number one. Yeah. And how do you recommend people do that? If you're able to, I think in-person connections are just the best. Yeah. Because it, it's, I love social media, of course. I'm always on it. Yeah. But I still always prefer to talk to people in real life or even like this, where it's just one-on-one, but designated time with each other, not mm-hmm. just like looking at a screen while I'm doing other stuff. Like so much of my social media posting is when I'm watching Netflix. Yeah. Something like that. Um, so definitely like intentional mm-hmm. time with the community. Finding people can be a bit of a challenge and in most cases I found people through social media so yeah. it's you know they they interact off of each other mm. for sure the like in person or one-on-one experiences have most most of my experience with disability community yeah. has come from social media but then resulted in these in-person or one-on-one connections yeah which can be very fruitful and comforting yes Hmm. Yes. And very, very helpful too. in just getting validation, especially hmm. because with some conditions, it's very hard to get diagnosed. Not every doctor is well-versed in everything. So it's really helpful to have a group to go back to hmm. and to say like, here's what's happening with me and have people respond and say, I believe you. Oh gosh. It's huge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I believe you and I see you. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what else? What would your other tips be? My other tips. Two more. Okay. Two more. Two more. Two more. So this was for people who are potentially entering the world of invisible disability, like we are. Okay. Okay. Try not to judge yourself based on your productivity. Mm. So much easier said than done. Mm. Something I still struggle with. Yeah. For sure, and think I probably will forever because that's just you know, how our social structure operates, unfortunately. But that's hugely important. Mm. If you're sick and disabled, then you're not going to be able to be as productive as a 100% enabled person. Mm. Especially once you factor in other ways of marginalization that you may have. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So definitely, definitely try not to value yourself based on productivity. Yeah. And... Particularly if you're recovering type A, like we are. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. So hard. Mm. (laughs) 
Uh, and my third piece of advice, hmm, make sure you sleep enough. Yeah. Definitely make sure you sleep enough. That's part of why it took me so long to get diagnosed is I was getting like four or five hours of sleep at the night and I felt like that was fine because mm -hmm. that was more than what my classmates were getting. Right. My school has a terrible reputation of students not sleeping. It's just awful. I think that's college. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, oh, it's so bad. So bad. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the professors encourage it too. Yeah. But that's part of what took me so long to realize that something was wrong because I thought I was just fatigued because I wasn't sleeping. Mm -hmm. And then I studied abroad and was sleeping enough every night mm -hmm. and was still extremely fatigued. And that's when I realized something was wrong. Yeah. So you, you can't tell unless you're taking care of yourself. Which yeah. again, like not everyone can afford to do so. Some people are working like three or four jobs and not mm -hmm. able to sleep because they have to keep working to live. Yeah. But so. if there are ways that you can find to yes. make that time more sacred, it mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. And I'm sure you've had to make some lifestyle adjustments, um, mm -hmm. you know, to manage your symptoms aside from just medications and, and, you know, accommodating treatments and things. But I'm wondering if you ever treat, uh, cheat on any of your treatment or lifestyle changes or have guilty, excuse me, guilty pleasures or comfort activities when you have a flare up, if you've got sure. like a top three of things you do. Um, to cheat or make yourself happy, what would those be? Okay, so I definitely sometimes will go off my supplements. Okay. I don't go off any of my prescription meds mm. because none of those really cause any negative feelings for me. Okay. But I definitely will go off my supplements, especially the garlic. The garlic makes me feel really nauseous sometimes. And as we've established, <laughs> not a fan. That. <laughs> More than most things. Yeah. Although that could also be part of that, that herxing or the die off, mm -hmm. right? But yeah. I know. But yeah, sometimes you just want to have a day where you don't feel yeah. nauseous. Yeah. So I just, I give myself a break. Yeah. A break. Um, yeah. Sometimes I eat foods that I shouldn't. And by that, I mean foods that are inflammatory. I'm very, very dedicated to not eating gluten because I've noticed that gluten makes me feel awful. Right. So that was easier to cut out, especially because there are so many gluten-free alternatives that still taste good. Yep, absolutely. And, and you live in New York City, so there's absolutely Not just at the grocery store, but also like at restaurants. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm very fortunate about that. Yeah. But I, I do sometimes eat things that are like really high in sugar or have a lot of dairy or are really spicy. And those right. are all things that make me more inflamed or make me more fatigued. Yeah. And honestly, it's never worth it. No. But I still do it. Yeah. Because the craving sometimes is just too strong. And I think like, oh, it'll be fine. And then it's not. I usually just use my period as an excuse. <laughs> That's what I do too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like my body told me I needed a donut. I couldn't yes. help it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then yeah. I instantly regret it because I feel yeah. so sick. Yeah, yeah. And it's but, like, you might as well have had the garlic. And right? Fun. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. At least known it was like doing something to help me get better potentially. Yeah. Whereas eating like all that chocolate is not helping. No. It just tastes good. It tastes good. And look, you mm -hmm. could go super, super dark chocolate. Sometimes that's, that's what I try to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I try I'm to the same. dark chocolate. 
Sometimes. And there are so many like yeah. vegan <laughs> dark chocolate options now too, where you can get right. stuff where there's no added dairy and some of them are mm-hmm. really good. They are indeed. Yeah. 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 So if, if I'm going to eat things that I shouldn't, then I try to get the like lowest dairy, lowest sugar possible. But sometimes I just fully ignore it. And yeah. Sometimes you just kind of go to bed and <laughs> Yeah. It's not strong enough to not. Yeah. And that's okay. I think that's part of that, like accepting the fact that this is all a human experience. Yes. Right. And really like cutting ourselves some slack. Absolutely. It's so key to this experience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it's part of that. I mean, you said earlier about not judging ourselves for, you know, our productivity. Mm-hmm. But it's also about just not judging ourselves if like, that's a thing we really want right now. And we're going to have it, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I need that lion, um, you know, whatever it is that you're feeling guilty about if there are ways to remove that judgment from yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I judge myself for it so Mm. much as I think, why would I, why would I do that? It it feels so terrible. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so nice in the moment. Yeah. It really is. Absolutely. Like an hour. Right. And then it hits and it's not nice anymore. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's like a one night stand with, <laughs> with dairy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's satisfying for a moment sometimes. Right. And it, it's okay or even wonderful for some people, but mm. not for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Any other guilty pleasures, you know, comfort activities? So definitely hanging out with my cat. No mm-hmm. guilt associated with that whatsoever. <laughs> nope. He's the best. Yeah. He's so fun. He's always causing trouble. He's always making me laugh. And yeah, and it, it, he helps me take time for myself too. Because mm. unless I like have something I absolutely have to get to, if he sits on my lap, then I won't move until he does. Yeah. I think there's a post like that at least once a day. There's a post where like Lupin is just getting in the way and you're like, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. I live here now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It happens all the time. And sometimes it's not even because he sits on me. Sometimes it's because he just decided he's going to sleep inside my backpack. I saw that. That was what really cute. Do? That happened what the other day. Do? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Adorable. I can't make him move. Yeah. Yeah. But it, he forces me to slow down and take time to just relax and not be running all over the place. And this is where like the importance of an emotional support animal can really be useful for people who are Mm -hmm. in this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he also helps me make sure I sleep enough because before, before I had him, I would be staying at school all night doing work. And Mm -hmm. then I got my cat. I was like, actually, I think I'll go home and hang out with my cat and sleep. And it was a big game changer. Yeah. Oh, that's mm-hmm. gorgeous. Yeah. Well, Sydney, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? Oh, I'm sure there are things, but we covered so much. I know. We've talked about so, so <laughs> much. And I'm really excited to post links to some of your work um, in writing and, you know, to um, your advocacy work, because you're also doing political advocacy, which overlaps with the disability advocacy with Simple Politics with a CK. Um, so we'll link to everything that you're doing so that everyone can find you. Um, and guys, if you're not following Sydney already on uh, Instagram, they're at um, at Tay Sidberg. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, and definitely follow along and, and watch everything that Sydney's up to and um, 
keep following updates and I'm looking forward to getting more updates about what happens with your thyroid. Um, I'll keep you posted. Yeah. And happy to talk you through any of it if it ends up being Hashimoto's because boy, do I know about all that. Um, Amazing. (laughs) So, um, and as I say, you know, every time I interview someone on the show, I end up with my friends. So you're stuck with me now. Perfect. (laughs) Love that. I love it too. And it is just such a pleasure to have had you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was fun. And we look forward to to talking. Yeah. I'm looking forward to talking to you again as well. Great. Yay. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.